Okay. I, you might not be able to see that very well. Yeah, I can stand here and see. Uh, anyway, I want to thank uh, Kylie, who has been uh, wonderful looking after me, and also all the organizers who um, so warmly welcomed all of the speakers. Um, I have to be put in this slot because um, we've had a day. Ross started us off this morning thinking about uh, where where did this field come from and how was it established at this particular. Uh, institution. And then uh, through the day, we've had numerous uh, talks really showcasing the, uh, the diversity and the wonderful work that is being done uh, in, in this field. Um, there, the last task of this marathon of the day is to uh, begin to sort of pause. That's why we have anniversaries, is to kind of pause and think about where, where does the field uh, go next? And that is a question that I've been really interested in. Uh, my uh, work has focused a lot on um, how and why we produce knowledge. And particularly, what does it mean when we produce knowledge around um, objects of identity? And uh, so this is where I talk about the, the impossibility and possibility debate, which I'm going to um, Unpack for you. Okay. Um, another reason why I'm really happy to be here is um, you know, this this week, 41 years ago, I met my, my partner, and so I have this very uh, this wonderful feeling about Oxford. It was only a half a mile from here, over in North Gardens. So be careful what happens. Things <laughs> 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 kind of happen. Uh, but uh, it's really this this city and this university where my uh, emerging uh, sense of, of feminism and commitment to gender equality started. So that's another reason why I'm really happy to be able to come back uh, to Oxford and be able to talk about that. Um, now, uh, the other thing about, I, I spent a lot of time this year talking about anniversaries, why we have them, especially with the, fir the First World War, uh, D-Day landings and all that. So I think about what does it mean to kind of pause uh, as we have today, and uh, think about this this field and uh, where, where it's going to go. Now, um, I actually am going to out myself as someone who decamped uh, from, from women's studies. Uh, not because I wanted to, but I arrived at the University of Manchester in 2002 to direct uh, the women's studies program. And within a year, the university said, well, we're closing down uh, women's studies. So I uh, picked up my things in my office and I moved across the road uh, out of sociology and into the English department. And um, I started a master's in gender, sexuality, and culture. So really moving away from the more social science-based uh, way, running a program like that, uh, more into the art, arts and, and, and humanities. Now, I wanted to uh, rehearse that. I mean, we know that at this universe, uh, at uh, Ruskin, for example, uh, women's studies is under threat. And so I want to express my admiration and envy, uh, Roz's directive of this program, to say, you know, 20 year uh, track record is really saying something, especially in this country where um, women's studies is not taught at undergraduate level at any, any institution. Um, and I, I also I want to talk about uh, myself as someone on the edge of women's studies. Once 
and now an outsider. And I'm wondering what that uh, perspective will help to bring as you begin to think about what would be the, the future of women's studies. Okay. Now, um, first thing I did when I got the invitation was to um, think about um, look at the course outline. I wanted to look at the core to see what the cohort this year uh, were up to. And I was really struck that uh, one of the first things that you had on your reading list were uh, two very important essays. And one is uh, by uh, Wendy Brown called The Impossibility of Women's Studies, a very important uh, essay that came out in, in 1997. And then um, The Possibility of Women's Studies which is Robin Wakeman's article, and um, that was published in 2005. And um, I don't want to summarize these important essays. I know that not everyone here has uh, analyzed them as carefully as the students uh, in the group this year. But I want to uh, think about what does it mean to think about a field as possible or impossible? And what happens to a disciplinary practice when it's at these kind of, uh, this kind of polarization, okay? So that, that's why I uh, decided on this, on this title. Now, uh, this is very interesting for me because I um, once, my, my, my first book was more along the lines of the possibility of historicizing uh, LGBT lives. And my most recent book, uh, I would say I kind of swung over to another side, um, closer to the impossibility of historicizing LGBT lives. And um, I've had to think a lot about what does it mean for a field to be both possible and also impossible, and what, what's at stake in that. And um, the reason why my own particular field, the history of sexuality, is an interesting field to think about in relation to the work you're doing in women's studies is because these are fields that are organized around an identity object. And um, this is uh, why Robin Wegman has called her uh, recent book Object Lessons. What are the lessons that we get from building knowledge practices around objects, okay? Now, that possibility, poss impossibility, impossibility, it could seem to lead to an epistemological impasse. Uh, how can we resolve it? And um, I was very interested that uh, Jack, for example, I, I heard the phrase, um, the, the political and the academic. So there you've got those, those two tensions. And, um, and Pat was talking about theory and practice. So uh, you can see, it keeps coming back within this field that you have these two, these two strains that are seeming like they're colliding or there's some kind of tension there. And that's what I want to really talk about is what happens when we, how do we come to terms, how do we come to terms with that? Um, must we just uh, live with this kind of oppositionality that it, these fields are both possible and impossible, theory and practice, uh, politics and, and intellectual? Um, and what I'd like to do is turn to my own field for a few minutes, uh, the history of sexuality, to show you how that debate plays out <coughs> elsewhere as a way to think about how to step outside of women's studies. So we're inside, 
about it being possible or in, impossible. But I also want to try to step outside and look at that logic. And by really confronting that head on, asking ourselves, what is it that we want this field to be? Okay, I guess that's why you're all here. So, um, okay, so I, I don't want to review those, those two articles, but what I want to do is uh, kind of summarize the gist in case you haven't uh, a clue at all what I'm talking about when I talk about it being possible or impossible. Ooh, hello. Do I, have I lost my PowerPoint? Probably hit the wrong thing. Okay. Okay, <laughs> good. Uh, okay, those of you who have been in uh, the cohort this year, you will recognize uh, this article that uh, appeared in The Guardian um, that was published by uh, Selena Todd. And what I want to do is I want to look at Selena Todd's uh, Guardian article to um, explain to those of you who don't know about the possibility and possibility debate, uh, we kind of do a little reading of that article to show you um, how you understand the terms of that debate <coughs> according to what she says. Now, Selena uh, cites examples of everyday sexism. Um, she draws on um, findings of the Royal Historical Society and also a group called Women in Philosophy. And uh, what she is explaining in the article is that the academy is a site of institutionalized uh, gender stereotyping. And she cites, for example, how some kind of gender traits in uh, men play out differently uh, with women. Um, for example, assertiveness or, or arrogance. And she talks about the kind of swaggering, macho culture uh, of the academy, where women are um, it's seen as um, overreacting sometimes, struggling to make their voices heard, and sometimes uh, feeling excluded. And so she uses the article as an opportunity to uh, announce a new initiative here at Oxford, uh, which is Women in the Humanities. And uh, their purpose, she says, is to introduce real feminism into the universities, and in doing that, to combat the marginalization of women. Um, speaking specifically of the master's program here, she, she says this is one way uh, to fight back. And she says, um, let's see if I have that here. Press that bar. Oh, no, no, not that one. Just it's just this little one. That one, yeah. Okay. She says, we aim to promote the study of women and to champion the rights of women working and studying in universities. Now that single sentence really neatly and succinctly encapsulates what, for Wendy Brown, makes the project of women's studies impossible, okay? Because in constituting woman as the object of study, uh, it's, it becomes more, not less, uh, difficult to fulfill political aspirations. Because identity knowledges produce and reproduce the discursive conditions of oppression rather than overturning them, okay? Now, uh, the negativity of Brown's critique stems from her theoretical understanding of the way that we construct knowledges around objects. And in this case, it's the object of woman. And she points out that this requires a very distinctive uh, model of 
power. Okay. Um, this is Brown. Okay. We are not simply oppressed, but produced through these discourses. A production that is historically complex, contingent, and occurs through formations that do not honor analytically distinct identity categories. And for that reason, um, it's a very sad critique if you're in this field, but that it's impossible. Uh, Brown would argue that uh, the study of woman as an oppressed object actually and paradoxically fixes that object as oppressed. So she concludes that this field will inevitably struggle to combat marginalization. And, and actually, she might go even further to say that uh, women's studies actually exacerbates gender inequality since the very circulation of the stereotypes reproduces the power imbalance because the object of study becomes that political reference. Okay, okay well, Wegman comes along and she's convinced that it's actually possible. This women's studies is a possible field. Um, and uh, earlier, she argues, her way of countering Brown is to say all knowledge practices, uh, history, literary studies, all, all forms of disciplinarity are organized around identity. That's her, her early argument. But more recently, in object lessons, uh, Wegman pre uh, presents, I think, a more nuanced uh, argument. Um, and she comes back to this idea about possibility and impossibility. And she says, Hello? <laughs> um, whenever we constitute an identity object of study, we are trafficking in a desire for critical practice to do emancipatory work, okay? So she's recognizing that. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us in this room interested in um, the knowledge practices uh, of objects, okay? Uh, we're kind of caught between the optimism of Wegman and the gloominess of Brown. And I'm wondering, therefore, if we might get some traction in thinking about that by um, turning to, uh, to my field, which is also about uh, a relationship uh, with objects. Okay, so I'm going to look at um, historical objects and historical knowledge. Okay, on the first day of my MA uh, course this year, I asked my uh, gender and sexuality students to go into Manchester City Center and trying to find a physical object that seemed to connect them to a feminist or an LGBT past. And on finding the object, I instructed them to uh, take a selfie to prove uh, that they had actually touched it. <laughs> and I knew that the rich, uh, radical heritage of Manchester would provide them with a lot of opportunities to snap uh, what you could call uh, monumental selfies. Uh, <laughs> selfies of monuments and memorials that would make the past feel closer to us and make us feel connected to those people in the past uh, through acts of commemoration. 
When the students came back the following week, I wasn't disappointed. Um, they found uh, some of the blue plaques on the university buildings. Um, this is the top one is Tamari Stopes. Um, this one uh, is to uh, Mrs. Painkhurst, and then to um, Alan Turing. They're all 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 had a connection with the University of Manchester. Uh, some of them actually went a little bit further afield, and they found um, the Alan Turing Memorial, which is uh, just off of Canal Street. Um, and uh, so those are the more adventurous. Some found the, the Banker's House, which is on the campus, and then some of them went into town. This is a particularly interesting uh, monument or commemoration, uh, but it is uh, not a an object of history. It's not a historical object. It is a site of collective memory. And people who work in this field talk about um, collective memory as a site of the affective experience, uh, sometimes a magical experience. If you do feel it, you can reach out and, and touch that past. So these plaques and monuments capture the tactile immediacy. They help to bind the identity of a group. It's not uncommon to walk past the Alan Turing Memorial and see it festooned with all <laughs> sorts of shrines. Actually, my colleague who is a medievalist thought someone was trying to give it a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very effective and magical. Um, but the point is um, that the, the commemorative object can, doesn't tell you about the past. There's nothing in this um, sculpture that tells you really very much about Turing. You have to know already. And, and to have it meet, be meaningful to you, it has to be um, confirm something that you thought you already knew about, about the past. That's how uh, this type of um, encounter with the past works. Whether it's about female suffrage, uh, of sexual emancipation or commemorating. Uh, as the LGBT history site puts it, Turing, uh, Turing represents a classic example of how society's prejudice has often robbed them of a dignified and, uh, and a fulfilling life. So when we stand in front of these tangible markers that seem to uh, narrow the distance between the present and the past, and we feel that we can experience the past feelingly uh, through the senses. That is a mode of pastness that some historians, not all, but some, find very troubling. Okay. Um, they, and that divide, uh, what historians looking at memory, I think that is really, really important. Now when it comes to identity knowledges, the story of how this plays out in the academy is, is kind of interesting. Uh, and the story goes very, very briefly, uh, sort of reducing about 100 pages of my last book down to uh, one minute, okay? Um, so first, there were traditional social historians who produced narratives of linear uh, progression. This is about the 1970s. And then lesbian gay people in the 1980s. And they see history as being objective. And that is what we call recovery history. Uh, we did hear a, a talk today where it was, uh, we heard a reference to reclaiming, reclaiming a history that has been taken from us or uh, hidden, hidden from us. So this is a mode of recovery history that's trying to carve out a space 
to uh, put people back, uh, bring people back into the uh, view. Okay. In the early 90s, those knowledge practices shift women to gender, lesbian and gay to queer. And um, these fields attempted to unsettle that kind of social history, that kind of recovery history that was still in a recuperative mode trying to find this kind of hidden, hidden past. Now, for queer scholars, social history's uh, way of making knowledge was very troubling. Uh, it was still invested in a progress narrative of liberation politics. It uh, understood the gendered or sexual self as knowable, as, as already there and available to kind of know. And also, uh, social history has a relationship to evidence that queer scholars uh, find very uh, disturbing. So whether investigating uh, the life of Mrs. Pankhurst or a gay man such as Alan Turing, uh, the dynamics of commemoration uh, would not be uh, would not be the kind of uh, the kind of encounter with the past that uh, that that um, historians would approve of. Okay. Now, uh, of course, that really over oversimplifies. Uh, but uh, traditional women's history and traditional lesbian and gay social history would be profoundly at odds with a later 90s feminist and queer critique. Okay, but here's where things get a bit weirder. To satisfy its interest in uh, an effective past, to satisfy its intellectual, affective, and imaginative needs of pastness, its overwhelming desire to feel historical, that's Lauren Berlant's uh, phrase, what uh, queer scholars claim, to feel historical. Queer studies uh, moves away from social history that it judges as unpersuasive. And for reasons, again, that I can't explain fully today, it did not gravitate toward a historical practice more congruent with its framework. But instead, uh, actually, uh, queer Queer studies uh, has often dismissed history as little more than empirical uh, data collection. Um, so it didn't encounter a field that I think is really interesting, which is critical history, a history that is interested in indifference, uh, a, a form of history that's very close to what Ross uh, was talking about this morning, uh, a practice that takes nothing for granted and uh, imagines kind of radical strangeness. Okay, so because queer studies already has a vexed relationship with his history, uh, when it turns to pastness, uh, its engagement is actually closer to commemoration than it is to academic uh, history practice. Um, so that is, um, uh, what happens I think is that queer studies gets kind of cut off from uh, the discipline of, of history and has been uh, rejected by history. And if you are, are familiar with this body of work, you can see that the uh, way that queer scholars engage with pastness is as uh, a backwardness, untimeliness, nostalgia, asynchronicities, and uh, anachronism. Okay. Um, 
And those forms of history, uh, professional historians would see pulling more closely toward collective memory rather than, than history. Uh, collective memory being the, the social and cultural dimension of what groups uh, remember. Okay, and this is seen as suspicious uh, by some historians. For example, uh, identity history would be tempted to see uh, the past as recursive or repetitive, looking across time. Valerie Traub, for example, has a phrase called cycles of salience. You go back across time and you, say, you see yourself in the 18th century, you look and you see yourself in the, in the 16th century. And the problem with that, of course, is uh, that way, the, why I see that as close to commemoration is that form of navigating the past will really tell us about ourselves now. It doesn't uh, do a very good job at telling us about, about the past. Heritage is a, another good example of where, where this works. Okay. Um, and it's very good because it helps to foster feelings of belonging for groups who have felt uh, excluded and who want to cultivate the habits of collective memory, uh, either to re recall good times uh, or bad times. But um, that form of history, Foucault tells us, is teleological. We always know the story we want to tell before we even start to go into uh, the archive. So collective memory could not be more at odds with critical history. And the point I'm trying to draw here is we're starting to see turning to past turning to the past as possible and also impossible when you're uh, engaging with uh, objects of uh, identity. Okay. okay, now just to give you a uh, move away from that historiographical theory, uh, just maybe give you a little bit of a case study of how that, how that would work. Um, okay, so to show how collective memory and critical history are uh, polarized, um, in, the, in the recent uh, issue of Women's History Review, there was uh, an article about uh, Vera Jack Holm, who was a cross-dressing actress, suffragette, and chauffeur. And uh, this author uh, looks at a poem that Vera Jack Holm wrote in 1910. And here is a passage, uh, it's a, a limerick, really. There was a young person named Jacko, whom the tabbies all wanted to smacko, for she cut her hair short and had a passion for sport and absorbed quite a lot of tobacco. <laughs> so uh, this author, uh, who has discovered this archive, this is a figure in 1910, and the scholar concludes that, that this limerick uh, con confirms Jack's identity as a lesbian woman at the time. And uh, the author writes, making her identity as a lesbian according to the conventions of the time, Jack's nickname and masculine dress act as signals of her sexual identity. So um, obviously she's basing that on what she thinks she knows before she looks at the materials. Um, and uh, she has turned Vera Jack Holm into somebody recognizable. She's basically translating the past into the things uh, we know about now. Um, like us, if you think about how we know the sexual now, uh, we are alert to the meanings 
the cultural meanings of the sex body. We are alert to reading gender variants. We look at, we observe the body to take stock of, of uh, what could be possibly the sexual identity and put it into a group. We see people as sexual somethings, okay? In 1910, according to my resources, uh, it would be extraordinary for someone to think like that. Most people did not think about people in relation to categories of identity. That's going to come much later uh, in, in the 20th century. So what we have is a kind of a projection, uh, and this is why we have books called Hidden, Hidden from the Past. Uh, the problem, of course, is that memory is going to dip selectively in, into the archive. And uh, it's not going to tell us very much about the past. And uh, so all we ha end up ha having is memory versus history, history versus memory, just like that possibility in impossibility. Um, I uh, am very persuaded by the impossibility argument, but I have to also acknowledge that there are uh, there is a deep hunger for uh, stories of of the historical past to also work to achieve an agenda of social justice. Um, so the trouble is, what? How are we going to bring this to any kind of uh, productive? Um, way forward because we're just hitting our hitting up against the wall of polarization uh, again. Okay. Okay. So what do we do with it? Impossibility, possibility, memory versus history. Two fields that have uh, been kind of uh, you know moving forward, but maybe not paying close enough attention to polarization. Um, I think it, one job that we have to do, maybe in the last discussion uh, slot today, uh, maybe it will be something you'll need to continue to think about, is to think about what do we want from our polarization? What do we want when we do that uh, to our field? What do we want from our polarities? And more particularly, what do we want from, a, from polarization that is critique feminist theory against practice? the agenda for, for uh, social justice, um, politics and theory. Okay, how, what are we going to do? And then I, I came up with this idea like, well, where, what are we gonna have with it? Should we just call it, call it off? Should we just try to ignore it? And what I want to try to do is to fore, foreground it. Um, and uh, if you, as someone who meets a lot of people who are interested in LGBT lives, um, they find, uh, my analysis doesn't play out very well, obviously. It's seen as very theoretical and even kind of extreme because I do insist on the radical strangeness of the past. Um, but what interests me is going to 1910 and trying to find out how Vera Holm really understood herself, not to just impose a reading on how I imagine uh, she did. So. Uh, we've got a couple of problems here. My kind of historicizing is not going to do a very good job of uh, crafting compelling narratives of the past for LGBT uh, history month. So um, I accept that th this type of history needs to uh, come to terms with those needs because every February 
rolls around, it's LGBT History Month, and I can't just say, you know, it's all made up. It's, uh, it's, a, fan it's a fantasy. So one way I've been uh, trying to come to terms with it is to go back and look at my statue of Alan, Alan Turing, take another look at it. And uh, I, I've spent a lot of time staring at it, and I think that this is maybe a place where we can begin to think about um, what, how uh, our encounter with the academy need not necessarily lead to polar, polarization. Okay, so um, here it is, the familiar and the enigmatic. Um, if we look back behind the figure of Alan Turing, you see embossed, uh, first of all, his birth, his name, his birth date, his death date, absolute empirical facts that cannot be uh, uh, challenged. But then you've got this. Uh, there's a 24-letter cipher. Very mysterious, all these letters. Um, and I was able to track down the sculptor. And, uh, you know, so what is the meaning of the cipher? And he says um, that it used to say something, but he no longer remembers what, where, when, <laughs> why, or how. Um, its code correlates to some particular place on some particular day with a particular type of machine. The place and type having some special significance, like Alan's birthday or something. <laughs> so um, I think this is really interesting because if you think about memory's urge, memory's urge is to look at that and to try to translate it, um, maybe to touch it, to touch feelingly through the senses. So we would uh, think about Turing as a gay victim of homophobia. <laughs> Or maybe we uh, see him um, as uh, the queer uh, genius whose suffering haunts us across time. Whereas my, uh, the mode of history I find most intellectually interesting would really want to accept that this is untranslatable. We, we can never really know what, what, that, what that means. So memory is going to reward the onlooker by giving us a, few, a mystical connection with the past. Um, whereas the critical historian is going to insist on that we will never be able to bridge that, or how are we going to be able uh, to bridge that. And what I've learned is that I, I can't dislodge the powerful yearnings of the past. People uh, will, no, no matter how many times I tell people that Radcliffe Hall has her hair cut at uh, Harrods for uh, several guineas, uh, you will read that she went to the local barber shop, okay, because we want to believe uh, that she was a butch, a butch lesbian. Okay. Um, okay, so women's studies is also a site where political action rubs up against the critique that is deeply suspicious of universalizing objects of knowledge. So Wendy Brown would not be surprised that Selena Todd felt as if she had stepped back in time when she witnessed sexist behavior at a recent conference. Or a, a blogger who responded to Todd's article said that she experienced a horrible sense of deja vu, having felt she'd been treated the same way 40 years before. Because for Brown, as well as for the critical historian, um, to create the conditions of change, we have to step outside of the 
now, uh, uh, outside of the knowledge practice organized around objects of identity. Those are very tough words for scholars who structure their knowledge practices around objects. It's very tough words for women's studies practitioners. But also, I don't think there's anything to be gained from overlooking that critique. By keeping women's studies as a field at once possible and impossible, I don't think that we're going to endanger its future. But we have to pay attention to the pressure points in method, purpose, and theoretical perspective. So I think we have to not be uh, debilitated by the polarization, but we need to really look at it and come to terms at what kind of differences are, are really there. So I'd say that for me, standing on the outside of women's studies, this has been really a really productive uh, debate, impo impossible, uh, possible. And I don't want to call the whole thing off. And as uh, Wegman has recently um, pointed out, it is a uh, very important for critical practice to do emancipatory work. So uh, that's what we have to figure out. Critique is always going to be wary of these, these, um, these limitations. Um, so where does that leave women's studies at Oxford? I'd say that it leaves it as um, ideally positioned to meet these uh, disciplinary demands. And I um, want to look at, whoops, how do you make it go backwards? Go back. back one. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, so let's look one more time at Wegman. She says, the problem for identity knowledges is not how to make our conception of politics accord with reality alone, but how to register the projections, transferences, anxieties and aspirations that comprise it. Okay, so what she's saying is that um, we need to understand women's studies as impossible, but we, we cannot allow that to um, prevent us from recognizing it as also uh, seen as possible by paying attention to the projections, transferences, anxieties and aspirations that we have in wanting to think of it as a field that is possible. So I'm going to offer that to you as a starting point and also possible to discuss in the final sec sec session, which is to imagine uh, collectively how are we going to do this? How are we going to uh, juggle a field that uh, wants to be both inside the identity framework and also outside? Um, fields that are poised, uh, poised to exploit rather than succumb to the edginess of the impossibility and possibility.